Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Hybrid Flexible or High Flex Learning Model. Nicole and I will talk with Dr. Brian Beatty, who is an Associate Professor of Instructional Technologies in the Department of Equity, Leadership Studies, and Instructional Technologies at San Francisco State University. His primary areas of interest and research include social interaction in online learning, flipped classroom implementation, and developing instructional design theory for hybrid flexible learning environments. Brian, thank you so much for finding time to talk to us about hybrid flexible or high flex learning model. Um, you know, it's interesting. It seems to me that more recently, the idea of a high flex classroom became really popular among instructors, administrators, students. And in some way, it seemed to become one of these approaches of moving forward and defining the new normal of teaching. What was interesting for me to find out is that you started developing this learning model a while ago. And there's quite a bit of research around that. Mm-hmm. And um, it would be great if you could share with us history of high flex model development and some of the main motivators behind that. Sure. Well, thank you for uh, being interested in the story behind the hype, because uh, we've all been, you know, the press and the experience in education the last two years has been a lot of need to do things differently to respond to the public health crisis. But there's also the opportunity, I think, to look forward and think about doing our educational system a little differently to increase high quality and hopefully equitable access to more more learners. And we, we started and HyFlex has been part of the conversation. then, of course, uh, especially the last the last year or so, we started using uh, an approach called HyFlex because we had a need in our program. I, I work at San Francisco State University, and I teach primarily in the graduate program and uh, in some other programs, but uh, primarily graduate students. And we found we had declining enrollments. This was in around 2005. And uh, we thought that, or some of our leaders thought that par- perhaps our solution for our program was to was to flip it into a fully online program, because then we could attract learners, you know, students essentially, market our, our services more, more broadly. And uh, the faculty who were in the faculty meeting, we just kind of looked at each other because we didn't teach online. We didn't have online students. We had a 25-year history of a strong face-to-face program, and we kind of liked it, right? We wanted to keep that. Uh, but we did see that there was a need perhaps to do some things differently. So I suggested that perhaps we could find uh, an intermediate solution where we would be, rather than just trying to flip into an online program, let's see if we could create a course design that would allow us to accept online students and also face-to-face students. So essentially, we could do both at once. We didn't have the funds to do two separate programs, and we really didn't want two separate programs. Um, and so it, and then it became clear that if we were going to combine students uh, in one class section, why not give students the choice to be there in person or to do it online. Uh, we were teaching adults, right? Higher education. Mm-hmm. And so students are responsible, are, have the responsibility and the authority to really make that decision. And if we could provide an opportunity for them to be online students when they either couldn't or didn't want to be in class, not only did we give them some flexibility, but we also kind of took away this idea of, well, I'm, I'm traveling for business or my kids are sick or I have to take care of someone else 
uh, or it's just too convenient. Traffic's bad today. I can't make it there for class. Well, still, there's no absence because of that because now you're an online student. So we came up with a, an approach, um, and it was a hybrid approach, right, combined online mm-hmm. and face-to-face, and it had flexible participation for students. And so we needed a different term other than just hybrid because it wasn't the instructor deciding who, when you're in class and when you're online. So we started to call it high flex, and that's how we started writing about it. And so it, it kind of worked its way into the literature starting, I think, in 2006 or so was the first time we started doing that. And so we've been doing that in our program uh, since. Um, several other programs at our institution started doing it. A lot of other people who heard about it uh, started asking me about it. And uh, I got a lot of calls from people who were in similar situations. They had declining enrollments in kind of a smaller programs, and they needed to be able to serve online students and face-to-face students with the same set of resources. And so HyFlex is a way to actually do that. So when um, when the pandemic hit us, we were perfectly positioned from the instructional perspective just to say, well, we don't have the classroom anymore. We're just going to all be online learners now. We didn't have to build anything else differently. It wasn't quite the same easy transition for students. I mean, some of the half the students were like were used to coming mm-hmm. into classrooms, um, but they were able to adapt relatively quickly. Some other institutions have taken this on over the years and done it more broadly. Uh, some institutions actually put their whole curriculum into this because they used it then as a marketing approach and a message to to uh, the people they wanted to serve. Some col- uh, high schools started doing things like this in certain situations. Now, for those situations, the flexibility component is na- is naturally different, mm-hmm. right? Because students are not adults and, and they cannot make that decision for themselves. And so it becomes more of a family decision. Uh, and sometimes the students are opting to be online students while they're on campus uh, for a particular class rather than going to class in person for some some good set of reasons. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of variety. Um, there's also been other modes, uh, names for this mode that others have used. And some of them developed this all on their own without even knowing there was something called HyFlex out there. You know, and then we, we would kind of find out that we were doing things together. We started sharing literature and things like that. But there, there's probably, a, you know, at least two dozen names out there that were uh, in the literature before the pandemic and now with other people coming up with other perturbations of the model and kind of hybridizing the hybrid model itself. Uh, there's even more terms of it out there. And a lot of a lot of institutions now are looking to see whether or not it's it makes sense to continue this on beyond the pandemic and beyond the public health uh, uh, restrictions that we find ourselves in. And so uh, conversations lately have shifted. And I do a lot more work with schools now that are looking for the long term. How do we prepare for the long term? We think this model really works well for our students. And how do we prepare our faculty, our administration, our staff and our equipment to make it work for the long term? And so that's kind of where we are right now. Thank you. That's interesting. I wanted to ask a question of as it changes from context to context, um, what kinds of from your experience, what kinds of involvement have you seen on the part of the instructor as it relates to how they need to modify their um, design or delivery to meet this demand for flexibility in core structure, but also who's in the classroom as opposed to who's online? Right. Yeah, those are. This is this is you know, clearly one of the most important things is making sure that the teachers, the faculty, the designers, whoever is working on the designs. They're working for, towards models of instruction that work at multiple levels. And so there is some difference between whether it's a, a school or institution decision that's being um, kind of pushed out to faculty, like, okay, we're going to do this 
overall, or maybe it's for a particular program or for a set of courses. If the faculty don't ha- aren't making that decision, the teachers aren't making that decision, then, um, you know, then they have to, they have to, there's a, there's a process of deciding that, that this is going to be a good thing because it, it wasn't their idea. Someone's mm-hmm. telling them to do this differently. So it's a little more difficult, I think, to, uh, to learn how to do it when the mindset is like, I'm doing this, but I, I, it's not my idea. I sure mm-hmm. hope this works out. I'm not sure it can. As opposed to, especially in the early days, it was pretty much all faculty driven for the most part. And so they wanted to teach differently. They saw the need. And so the compelling why for them was strong enough so they would be able to overcome these and they put forth the effort into it. The kinds of things that need to change really are the technology in the classroom has to be available. Uh, to if, if you're trying to use the classroom to support the online students, then the technology in the classroom has to support that capturing of what's going on in the classroom. And in some cases, if you want to stream live to students for synchronous online, you know, the emergency remote instruction that may be designed better, then you need to be able to connect that stream to the online synchronous students. Even if you don't have synchronous students or not many of them, you still might want to capture what's going on in the classroom because you're generating content in the conversations in the class and the activities that can be useful for asynchronous online students uh, who may be doing it later, you know, after your live sessions are over sometime during that week. So there's certainly that technology component. But what goes along with that, too, are the skills that it takes to manage, uh, like, two sets of students talking about synchronously. You've got Mm -hmm. students online who you may see on screens, and you've got the students in the classroom. How do you manage that? I think you manage that very similar to what you would do to manage your face-to-face students. Or if you've got experience, like I think we all do, managing uh, in web conferencing technology, and you find ways to make it work together. It's like learning a different set of skills, though, to manage that. It's more complicated, clearly, right? But these are skills. I mean, teaching in the classroom is complicated, too, when you're starting out. Teaching online just in a web conference just with those students, that was complicated, especially starting out. And so it's it really is kind of learning a different set of skills to, to, to manage that the multiple modes at one particular time. And I don't think it's fair to teachers or to anyone to expect teachers just to walk into that the first time or the second time or even the third time and be perfectly comfortable with teaching that way. Because in no mode when we started teaching differently have we ever walked in and been automatically comfortable teaching online. So that's an important part of, that's a really important consideration. Now, if you're adding in an asynchronous uh, student participation format, the challenge there for teachers often is learning how to build and implement and then facilitate an online class, an online asynchronous class. That's a whole other set of skills that if, if you've never done that, you probably don't have those skills, and you might have to get some, some help preparing those classes for the first time and maybe some guidance on how to teach that way um, so that you're effective and you're engaging students, but you're also not spending 60 hours a week you know, teaching when your budget says, you know, 40 hours a week. <laughs> so there, there are challenges like that. And that's just on the teacher side. Because right? then we have challenges on the student side as well. I think the challenges on the student side are uh, in some ways are less critical in that the students, if you know, have the ability to, to pick a mode, hopefully, that fits them well. And so the, the, the teacher has to provide instruction in all the modes that are being offered. The student really has to learn only in one mode. And, you know, if they, if they want to learn in multiple modes, they can pick a mode and stay with it. 
I'm interested in the idea, you know, you talk a lot about the student-centered approach and also students having the flexibility of a choice. I think that's a rather novel and also sort of difficult idea for some of the instructors to wrap Mm -hmm. around their heads because we're so used to coming into the classroom and we have the agenda and we know how we're going to do that. So all of a sudden you're giving a lot of options and choice to students. Mm -hmm. Now, are there, so first of all, I'm curious about what types of students, whether we're talking about what freshman students fit in this profile, what types of students succeed in this choice model and when you would not advise for students to be part of such a class? I don't know if if this question makes sense. Yes, that's a really good question. I think it's an important one for us to consider early on when we're considering high flex, because if you if you come to the decision that for our students in our institution in these courses, this is probably not going to be a good a good approach for us to mm-hmm. use with them. And we don't have a documented need for them to have the multiple access to different forms then we probably don't want to do this, or we do it very carefully and cautiously and step-by-step, maybe in stages. But I would say in general, there's no level of students that couldn't find success in this mode. Um, and I say that because we have records over the last 20 years of students that we wouldn't necessarily expect or predict to have success in, like, a fully online asynchronous course, actually mm-hmm. finding a lot of success in a fully online asynchronous course. And the same thing was with a fully online synchronous course uh, and, of course, in the classroom. But we also have documentation and records of a lack of success in every one of those modes as well. <laughs> and sometimes sometimes the students that don't do well in the classroom surprise us. Their demographics say, well, you know, according to the historical trends, you should be able to do quite well in the, <laughs> in the face-to-face classroom, and yet they don't. They could actually be a better fit for an online asynchronous version or an online synchronous version of that particular, you know, that, that, that learning experience. So I would say that, um, while the best, the best, if I had to pick a, a certain set of characteristics that makes mm-hmm. someone a really great fit for this, good independent learning skills, I think are important. And the ability, this kind of the idea that the ability to kind of self-regulate your, your choices around learning so that you know that I'm a good independent learner, and so I should be able to good fit, be a good fit for an asynchronous path through this course because mm-hmm. that really requires someone who's good at independent learning. They have to be able to know what to do, when to do it, how well am I doing with this, am I ready to move on, do I need to ask for help, how do I ask for help, and, and they be able, have to be able to work that way. But you could also have a student who's a good self-manager who prefers the classroom environment, who loves the idea of dependent learning, as in I like learning around other people. I like to be able to ask questions when I have them, and I don't want to wait two hours or two days or a week to get an answer question mm-hmm. in an online course. I'd rather be there live with the faculty and my and my peers doing that that kind of work. And if I can't make it there in person, then I would probably choose the online synchronous. So I think it's impossible to really to predict which is the best mode for any single student mm-hmm. uh, because we don't know all this, the specific details about that particular student. I've had students who were great in the classroom who never came to the classroom. Why? Because they had a work conflict or they had another class conflict, mm-hmm. right? So they took it as an online course and, and vice versa. Students who were always online who m- would have been a much better fit in the classroom who had to really struggle in the online world because they weren't good independent learners, but they had no other option. They couldn't get the campus. They were too far away or they had a time conflict that was there every week. Did they find success? Yes. Do some of those students not succeed? Yes. 
We find that in every mode. The problems and the challenges we have in any single mode instruction, we kind of bring all of that into high flux. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that is the successes we have in any single mode, we also bring that into high flux as well. So the mode itself doesn't control the success or the failure, really, of, of the learning experience for students. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a very much, very contextual, I think, and it very mu- really is a very much a student by student kind of analysis, like a lot of education. It's a very complex, you know, human learning is a complex, uh, kind of set of functions that we, we know a lot about, but there's also so much we don't know. No, I was going to ask, um, along the lines of this conversation, talking about how then do we build interaction? So we know the literature talks about the value of that interaction with the instructor peer to peer. How do you build that um, interaction then for both the students in the class and if you do have synchronous students online? Sure, that's a really good question. That's an important part. And when I talk with faculty about designing for HyFlex, you know, one of the most, as important as any other single thing we talk about is this need for engagement in any single mode, but then also across all modes to the extent we can. And so classroom interaction for most faculty who have been teaching for a while is really not a problem. Um, in their minds, at least, they're a good in- engager. They engage as much as they want to. Now, their students might appreciate more engagement. That's really that's really kind of a different different aspect. But the classroom t- uh, engagement, uh, we kind of assume we've got that kind of going pretty well. And when we work with st- synchronous students, if they're synchronous only students, a lot of the same things that work in the classroom work online. But it, they don't all work really. You know, if you've got 20 or 30 students in in a you know in a synchronous online connection and they're not showing their videos, and I can't force them to show their videos, and they won't answer a question. I need to do different things in order to get them to act, interact. In the classroom, if I wanted them to interact, I would put them to small groups, groups of two or three, things like that. So for me, the online synchronous space, I use a lot of little breakout rooms or, or mm-hmm. polling kinds of things like that. Well, it turns out you can use exactly the same approaches with students in the classroom. Little tiny breakouts where they might have not have to move around, but your online students in synchronous, they can be into breakout rooms even for two or three minutes, and then they come back, we do a debrief, and we move on. Or the polling. I can do an online poll for synchronous students, and the students in the classroom, most of them have devices. They can be part of that online poll, or they could just they could just raise their hand or give verbal responses to that. And so what I've found that is as I'm teaching, as I as I taught more and more primarily synchronous online the last year and a half. I became more aware of the need for high levels of designed interaction in the synchronous online space. Mm-hmm. And when that also affords what I'm doing in the classroom, the classroom becomes a different but just as good experience. Mm-hmm. The interaction patterns are slightly different than they were before if it was all just in the class students, but we're still doing lots of interaction, just using more technology to mediate it. And just to clarify, so you say when you do a breakout room, do you usually mix the students who are synchronous, remote, and in-person students? That's a good, yeah, that's a good question. And sometimes I will try to mix students, and it, it really kind of depends on the kind of breakout it is. If it's a quick breakout, I'm only going to do it for five or ten minutes, I probably won't try to mix students up. Because when you're trying to put students together in the class and online in the same breakouts, there is some time it takes like, just to get that transition happening. Because the students in the classroom, they have to have personal audio audio technology, like mm-hmm. earbuds and a microphone mm-hmm. that's close enough to them so it doesn't catch all the noise of the classroom. Uh, but for a longer breakout, then I might intentionally try to mix up the groups so that it doesn't become an us and them kind of kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Some breakouts you might take for 20 or 30 minutes in a longer class session because you mm-hmm. have something, some, some, something extensive for them to do. 
So in, in a situation like that, if I have a larger room and I can move students around or, or let students move around and I can kind of get them a little more isolated audio wise, then I might try to mix them uh, in that situation, in particular for a longer breakout, you know, where they're mm-hmm. doing some more substantial conversations. It also depends on the number of students. If I only have, you know, one or two in the classroom, which in a very, in a small class could possibly happen or only one or two online synchronously, it may not make sense for them to be in their own breakout room. In that case, we would try to do what we could to connect them technologically with students in the classroom. Since students in the classroom, a lot of them have their own technology and most of them have their own, who have technology also have some sort of audio solution like, you know, headphones or earbuds. Um, we can usually make that work for moderately sized classes. What is your advice on the size of the class? Because I think it's very um, attractive to many institutions. Well, we can just put as many students as we can <laughs> in an online space. Right. Well, I think part of this depends upon the design that your HyFlex course designs and what you allow. On our campus, we allow faculty, if they want to teach a HyFlex course, it really just has to meet two requirements. It has to have a face-to-face and at least one online path. But the faculty can decide whether that's synchronous or asynchronous or perhaps perhaps both. Or maybe it changes from week to week. That's really kind of up to them. Um, and then the students have to be free to make that choice. And so those are the two factors. There's got to be at least two paths, one in the classroom, one or more online, and they have to be able to make that choice. So on our campus, we've had classes. Um, we've had a lot. We had small classes using HyFlex, and sometimes the small classes are attracted to HyFlex because they might get two or three more students enrolling in the class if they can do it online and they can't be there in person or vice versa. But we've also had that use this model for classes of up to a thousand students. Mm. And that only, you know, so a, a class with a thousand students is very difficult to do in highly interactive manner, right? Unless you have a lot of TAs and lots of, lots of, you know, problem groups and things like that. So if you have a relatively weak pedagogy and you would pack a class in a big lecture hall, maybe not a thousand, but what's different? What's the big difference between a thousand and maybe 250 students? You know, very similar pedagogies often use lecture testing, maybe some light interaction, um, you know, t- uh, polling, you know, kind of clicker kind of things in the classroom. You can you can easily do that same kind of pedagogy online. Is it great pedagogy? Is it lead to great learning? It depends so much on the student. Some students learn a lot in those classes, but they're not learning a lot unless they are really well self self directed in their learning path. It's the same thing would be would be I think with the high flex uh, version of that. You can still have the same pedagogy. And it's just as effective or just not as effective as it was in the classroom with a thousand students or a very large lecture hall. So once again, I don't think that, I don't think the size of or the, the high flex mode matters necessarily. It really has to, it feeds into this idea of what kind of class do you want to have? How much engagement do you want to support? Most of our campuses, like our campus, our standard class sizes, I think the average is around 30, 35, something like that. We have a lot that are in the 50, 50 range. Uh, we have a few that go above 100, and we also have a lot that are in the 20 or below range, uh, depending upon the kinds of classes we teach. We can teach them all with HyFlex, but it certainly is easier to do when it's a smaller class size, just like it would be teaching us easier to do in a highly interactive way, I guess I'd say, when you have, you know, less than 50 students in a class. You know, an ideal class size for HyFlex, not sure what that would be. My classes are typically 15 to 25 students, and for me, I find richer experiences for students in the different modes when there's more students because under more, there's more in each of the modes mm-hmm. where it becomes a little less, where it becomes more challenging for those students to be uh, getting a lot of interaction is when there's only two or three online asynchronous students 
or there's only two or three students in the classroom. Um, one of the things I've, I've started doing recently is I've shifted all of my students, no matter what their mode of participation for like the live session is, to doing asynchronous online discussions as part of their expected classwork so that if I only have two or three students who are asynchronous that week, everybody is still part of that asynchronous discussion. So that makes it a much better experience for all of those students. I haven't figured out a good solution to only having two or three students in the classroom. And that sometimes happens. Uh, and so um, in a situation like that, we in the past, we've had a couple of classes where the faculty would ask me when I was department chair, hey, none of the students are coming to class. Do I have to be here too? I said, well, if, you, if they will all agree to only do this online, they, they essentially are choosing to be an online student all the time. I said, you're, you know, then you don't need to be here. We don't have that requirement. Um, some other colleges that have done this have required <laughs> faculty to be in the class just in case someone shows up, right? I, when I have, a, when I start having small numbers of students showing up for a class, I then start, what I start doing then is I ask them a few days ahead, do you plan on coming to class? And, you know, if you want to be here, I will be here. But if no one's planning to come to class, well, then I don't have to be there either. I can just teach the synchronous session, which is what most of them tend to want, and manage the online students without having to take, do my own commuting to go to campus to be face to face when, when there's really no other students that, that want that. One of the faculty will often ask me, you know, when they, when they talk about this, well, what if all the students start doing it online? I'll say, well, they're telling you something by the modes that they're choosing, especially if you think that they're choosing that mode, not because it's the best for them or that they have to do it, but because is it easier for them? Do they feel like it's easier? Take a look at your course design. If they're, if they're choosing to be asynchronous online students, because you're really not asking them to do anything online. Okay. Do some readings and, and make a post. Okay. Students can, can do that pretty quickly. And the ones who aren't, really invested in learning, you know, can scan through a reading and put up a few ideas in a, in a forum without spending a lot of time doing that. And if they had that choice or coming to your classroom for an hour or two and a half hours a week or something like that, someone's going to make that choice. So that she, I think that the, the solution there is make sure that the online path is not easier than the classroom path. When And the other thing I'll say, if you think, you know, a lot of faculty Teachers, we love to have students in the classroom, right? That's kind of where we all grew up. And a lot of us, that's one of the reasons we went into teaching is because we like interacting with people in the same space. Well, if they're not, if they're not showing up there, that tells you they're not finding any value there from their perspective of value. So why would they come to class? You know, one of the important things in a lot of our classes is the, is the, um, the interaction we have with other people before class, after class. Uh, maybe during breaks, and that social interaction just doesn't really get replaced online. That could be one reason why students would want to come to class. And so supporting that in some important way or professional networks or other kinds of resources that might be available in the classroom that just aren't available online and making sure students are aware of that, those could be reasons that you would you would uh, bring them back into the class. But, you know, they're, they're making their own value decisions. Do I drive an hour, pay for parking, um, you know, walk through the room, sit there and I just sit and listen to someone talk to me and then I drive home for an hour, you know, I don't know if I would do that. But if I go in there and we're going to have some really interesting interactions and we're going to do some activities, I don't, I don't claim that, uh, you know, the online version of a course should have the same activities as a classroom. I think we should try to find as many similar activities as we can, but there are some activities that are really good, exciting and, uh, you know, worthwhile in the classroom that you just can't do online. There are other activities that you can do online that you're not going to do in the classroom because you have other things that you can do in the classroom. So if the if the if the classroom is a live, engaging, active, and enjoyable place to be, 
then more students will probably choose that than would otherwise. But they have to have a reason to do that because it costs students something to be on campus. Now, if you're dealing with primarily traditional students who live on campus, it's not nearly as much of a cost for them. Um, as a matter of fact, I know some students on campus where it's more convenient for them to be in class in person than to do it online. You know, because I've got a class down the hall that ends 10 minutes before your class. If I tried to do your class online, i got to find a place to be online synchronously or do it asynchronously. I really like to be there and have that live conversation. And then right after that, I've got another class 10 minutes away. So it's easier for me just to show up, do the live interaction, which, I'm, which is what I'm used to anyway, than it is to do it online. So um, based on um, what you just said and most of the discussion about this iFlix, uh, it seems to me like there's a requirement that students should be self-directed or self-regulated learners, right? But they are not, I would say most students aren't naturally that way. So how much scaffolding would you say is required on the part of the instructor to get the student to be able to understand that at some point they have to be the ones to pace themselves and choose how they engage? Nicole, that's a really wonderful question. And let me start by saying that there is always a mode right, the classroom mode that uh, is really kind of been designed for people who aren't necessarily self-regulated. So when our students aren't self-regulated, if we can help them make a choice to be in the classroom um, when they have no evidence or they have, maybe there's evidence that they're not a good online learner, and if we can make that clear to them and show them and help them make that choice, if they can make that choice, well, then the classroom is there. So we, we kind of have the, I'd like to think of it sometimes as a safety net for them. And I've had students who told me this at the end of a course. I was online, but I was really glad to know if I was having trouble, if I was struggling, I could always come to the classroom. So we do kind of have that that kind of built in. But that said, it certainly does help to have students who are learning how to be self-regulated learners. And if students aren't good self-regulators now, one of the one of the reasons they aren't perhaps is because they've never had to be. They've always been told where to go, when to go there, what to do when they're there, and then what to do when they go home to do their homework and then come back in. Right. And we'll take care of you in class. And so they've never really been challenged to develop a sense of agency around their own learning. So even though it's a challenge, I think it's a challenge that actually that experience, if we if we can manage it well and if we can support the students, we can actually help them build some of those skills. I think we realize that for you know long lifetime learning, it helps to know what you want, what you need to learn and how you learn best. So you can make those choices on your own. So what do we do? Well, one of the things I, I ask students all the time is every, every week I ask them for um, basically an open journal entry in our in our online uh, LMS system to tell me how they're doing. I don't want to know what you're learning. I want to know how you're doing. You know, how's it going for you? Are you struggling with this? Are you struggling with that? And that gives me an opportunity for them to tell me something that can then, uh, you know, trigger for me. Say, I, I think I need to talk to the student. And so I make it really easy then for us to set up a quick 15-minute uh, online call so that we can just touch base, I can get a sense, maybe I suggest they come into the classroom or, or ask them how that's going. So I try to make myself even more available. That's one of the big problems with the, the online asynchronous environment is that usually that immediate help from faculty or peers is just not available. So to the extent I can make that easier for them to get to, that really helps. I also provide some guidance like in the syllabus, we talk about this the first week of class, how to make that choice. And if you're gonna choose to be an online uh, learner in this class, what does that mean? That means that you, you need environments like this. You need technology like this. And if you find you're struggling in different ways, then you should maybe consider a different mode. One of the nice things about having two online modes, synchronous and asynchronous, is that if someone's not doing well asynchronously, 
they can often make time, some of the time at least, to be a synchronous student. The synchronous connection they have with you and the other students is pretty powerful, right? And it does help, it help, does help give a lot more uh, of that um, feeling like I'm learning this with other people and I actually have some agency to influence what we're doing in class because I can ask a question online and my question can be answered. If I'm an asynchronous online student, I might not even think I can ask a question. I may not know how to do it. And even if I do, I might realize, you know, someone's not going to reply to me for a couple of days. So why even ask the question? So that synchronous online to go along with the asynchronous online, I think, is a adds another level of student support um, for those who are able to take advantage of it. And to kind of, you know, maybe add to this line of thought and just maybe zoom a little bit more on social interactions, because I know we talked throughout today's discussion about uh, social connections a little bit. So my question is, it's really hard, I think, many realize to to support social interactions for online mode, to support social interactions for uh, even in person mode. How do you if you have any specific tips to help instructors? to help connect the groups of online synchronous, online asynchronous, and in person? Is it even possible? Or do you just um, say, you know, I cannot do much about it, and it is what it is? Yes, that's true. I I try not to say that too much, but sometimes I do have to say, well, I've done what I can, and I (laughs) I can't do anything more. But I I do think, you know, we we know a lot about social interaction in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And we've learned a lot more about social interaction in the online synchronous space. And we actually do have a pretty good history of over two decades of online instruction in a primarily text-based asynchronous online courses. And some of those courses have been very successful with developing social interaction and professional relationships, mm-hmm. um, even, even when you wouldn't expect it to be able to happen. There's good evidence out there in the literature and in just really kind of the stories we tell each other who people have been teaching online for a long time about how that was such a great class. We had we developed such a great community, and it was all online, and we never saw each other, and we even never maybe even used videos. So we know we can do social interaction well in the classroom and online, in the various modes of online, and we, we know what works in those areas. And so we can figure out how to do that for ourselves. What resources do we need? What skills do I need? And that's what our training to learn how to teach online does. That's what our training to learn how to teach in the synchronous classroom does. Okay. I think the big challenge for HyFlex is, one, to learn all of those techniques, right, which often have a lot of overlap, but then to learn how to do also in engagement opportunities, interactions across all modes. So one of the things I do in my classes is when I have, a, like, a long group projects, like more than one class, I assign students to groups or I let them choose groups without respect for which kind of mode they're normally participating in. Mm-hmm. So what this what the, what this does is it, it offloads a lot of the group process from the live classroom environment into the the group decides how they're going to interact synchronously asynchronously and they end up they end up having to manage that much like they would do in a, in their real life like mm-hmm. in a work situation that where you're working with people in different locations clearly that that doesn't solve all those problems but it does force them to come up to some resolution about what problems will work for their group for their particular process. Um, that requires them then to interact with people in different modes because some of those people are usually in the classroom and other people might be always asynchronously online. So that's one thing I do around group projects. Mm-hmm. Now, that may not work in every situation, and there's clearly some value if you've got students who are in the same project group who are always seeing each other in person in class because they're just part of that group of the course that's always there. But 
I, I try to make sure that I'm not making uh, and I'm not I'm not letting them know that I think they should be in a class or in a group with all of the same people in the same mode that they're normally in. Mm-hmm. The other thing I do is those online discussions I was talking about. Mm-hmm. That's a form of interaction as well around ideas, kind of reflective practice with, with talking about ideas and helping each other understand differently. And I do that for all the students. That was one of the other benefits of doing that. Not only was it a richer discussion for the asynchronous online students, it became another rich application-oriented discussion for all the students and something they can do together. So it's a natural connection connection point. So essentially, about a third of their contact time with me is taken out of the synchronous environment and put into the online asynchronous forum discussions. Just like we would count that as part of our interaction time for an asynchronous online course, Mm -hmm. it's part of the interaction for the way I teach my HyFlex courses. Mm -hmm. So that's another important connection there. I also mentioned that reflection forum I use. That's where they're talking about how they're learning the process. They're frustrated. They're happy with their learning. They're excited about it uh, or whatever they want to say. But they say that also to a forum that everybody sees. And so all the students, once again, they're doing the same activity in the same format. And when I want to do things like that, it almost always has to be asynchronous online because the asynchronous students are never part of the synchronous connection. So when they're doing things together, clearly that's a shared experience then. So when we have students who are doing the same things at the same time or in the same mode, at least, like the asynchronous discussions and the mm-hmm. reflection forums, they're sharing their experiences. And that leads to the sense of uh, community formation. Okay. Communities usually form around shared experiences. Mm-hmm. And so that I think that helps. And that's really what I can do. Okay. So so I have a, a what I think is a problematic question for you. Would you say that there are some disciplines, some content that are more suited for high flex and others that are less so? Or can everything be taught this way? Well, that's a great question, Nicole. I'd love to tell you that everything can be taught to every student by every teacher in a, a mode like high flex. But that's just not true. And I think we all know that. <laughs> what, what usually when, when someone asks me that question, sometimes it's a relatively easy answer because we have lots of examples of ways that it's been taught well online only. And if it can be taught online only, it can usually be taught well in high flex. There are other situations where it's hard to find anybody doing this well online. You know, you, you do a quick search and nothing's coming up or maybe there's one little program offering this and you just kind of suspect, like, can they really be doing this online? Those are the kinds of situations where you you probably aren't going to be pursuing a high-flex approach. Uh, But there are some courses that can be taught partially online. So, for example, a good example are some of our STEM courses, like a chemistry class, like an intro to chemistry class that has a lab component and a lecture component. A lot of places will have three hours of lecture a week and maybe three or four hours of lab. Well, that lecture component is usually delivered in a way that could be well-learned, easily learned, or not easily learned perhaps, but easily taught online in a situation like that like on our campus some of our courses our lectures they kind of put all the people together in a big large lecture section and then they stream it and they record it and so students can actually do it uh through multiple modes like high flex but the lab component they have to be there in person for Mm -hmm. sometimes labs can be done online in simulated labs or can be done at remote locations like uh like a like a lab at home kit um, but that's still not likely to be true for a lot of courses, especially more advanced courses. So what we find is that sometimes we'll split courses up and we'll just it'll basically be a hybrid approach, a hybrid high flex approach. 
So part of it's done uh, with some flexibility, like anything in the classroom uh, that's like lecture oriented or presentation oriented, we would provide high flex for. Um, but then the, the interaction piece is the actually you have to be here manipulating something or working with other people in front of you, you know, like a clinical class or something like that, or a nursing class where you're working with patients. You're not going to do that online. Mm-hmm. Or I guess maybe you could, but you wouldn't get the full range of what you're experiencing. So in those situations, we would require students to be there in person. And as long as we let students know when they're signing up for a course, what the modality is, what the participation, the flexibility, but also the requirements are, then that's that's about that's as good as we can do. And I think that we're doing our jobs with that. We shouldn't promise them the ability to reach learning outcomes that we well know is not, are not going to be met uh, through an online asynchronous course and give them that mode to choose from, because that would be disingenuous of us. That would be, you know, that would not be ethical. I also want to ask a question about um, assessment. How does that work in, in the situation with different modalities of teaching? Right. Yeah, that's another good question around assessment. This, this is one of the, with the other big areas of uh, kind of challenge for someone thinking about redesigning their course. And I think for most of us, um, the natural tendency is to try to come up with uh, similar but different forms of assessment. Like if we're doing testing in the classroom, we'll try to do testing online, but the online testing environment is not the same as the in-class testing environment. In, usually in class, you're being proctored by the faculty member or maybe some TAs. If you have a question, you can get a question answered. In the online world, you may not be proctored by anyone. Or if anything, you're often being proctored by by a webcam and a, and a microphone that's listening to you and watching you, maybe two webcams in some systems, that's a very different set of circumstances and environment for taking that test than it is in the classroom. And so grades are going to be different, okay? If there's no proctoring at all, typically the online grades go up. If there's a lot of that heavy-duty proctoring going on, that kind of you might call like big brother uh, proctoring, mm-hmm. Sometimes grades will go down because the levels of anxiety go up for students. Mm-hmm. And so what I try to do is encourage faculty to come up with a single way of assessing. And if it has to be tests and quizzes, do them all the same. And that's usually going to be in the online space. And so if you're going to move them online, um, on our campus, we don't, we don't use third-party proctoring software for a variety of reasons, unless it's, um, at least not for classes. Sometimes we'll do it for a certification exam or something like mm-hmm. that. But what we try to do then is to help faculty think differently about the kinds of questions they're asking, the way they're using quizzes. Is it okay for students to keep doing the quiz over and over until they get the right answers? Because you just want them to know the baseline information before they go into the presentation or the lecture part of it or some other interaction. Or for the online, for the test, can you write it as a take-home test? Or can you at least do randomization and other kinds of things that kind of reduce the likelihood of students sharing answers uh, in those kinds of things? So change so so that's one thing we try to do is think about well can we do it all one way and you know um uh and then change the form of what we're doing to kind of make it fit that that most restrictive or whether it's least restrictive most restrictive i don't know but whatever the biggest challenges are to try to solve those through the design in the classes that i typically teach i've kind of gone away from tests as a, as a way of uh, evaluating learning i still use some quizzes as a way of making sure students are doing some reading before they come to class but that's like the you know, I'll randomize the questions, 10 questions, and you can take them as many times as you want before this time, but I expect you to do the quizzes before you come to class. It's like a participation grade. But all the other heavy assessments are typically more what you might call authentic. They're projects, they're reports, they're presentations students are doing, their papers they're writing, and those are done all the same for everybody. They're turned in the same way. So it's one form of assessment that everybody gets to be uh, doing exactly the same, no matter what mode of class that they're particular in. 
Uh, and one of the follow-on questions is often around presentations. What about class presentations? Mm-hmm. I give the students the option to do a live presentation either in class or online or a recorded presentation. Asynchronous students, they have to do recorded presentations. Some of my other students, though, I found would prefer to do recorded presentations than to do a live presentation. So I give them that option as well. You can also do your recorded presentation. And if you're here live and you have a recorded presentation, rather than doing the live presentation, you could play your recording and we'll watch it with you and then we'll ask you questions. And then you get the opportunity for live feedback, which, which is helpful for a lot of students. So um, that's what I try to do. I try to give them the same set of assessments uh, and in the same format as much as possible. And that format is usually the, the format that fits the asynchronous online learners. Clearly, there are some things that we might want to do with assessment for face-to-face students or our synchronous online students, especially formative assessment, where we're trying to get a sense of how much they know and where we should go next, that we're just not going to be able to do with our asynchronous online students. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we have to accept. There are differences. I talk a lot about equivalence as one of the pillars of HyFlex. Mm-hmm. That's equivalent learning outcomes. That's not equivalent experiences. The learning should be the same, even though the way you go about it is going to be different, and that's going to force the experience to be different for every student, at least in the different paths. And that's mm-hmm. just one of those. That, that's what it, that's, you can't change that. You can have a great discussion in the classroom, and you can have a pretty good discussion online synchronously. That's not the same as the classroom, but very close to it. But to do that online asynchronously, it's going to be a very different discussion. Thank you. One of the things we want to provide for listeners are like actionable items, you know, like little nuggets or recommendations that you would give to someone who says, hey, I'm keen on trying this in my class. What kind of advice would you give to such a person? And, well, and actually, and sorry, before you start, I do have also a question from Dr. Traveler, and I have a question about dealing with the complexity of designing for three audiences at once, synchronous mm-hmm. in person, synchronous remote, and asynchronous participants. Any tips about how to do this would be welcomed. And I think it's also it's such an important question because what we're realizing that a lot of the instructors don't have time right now right. or opportunity to get trained on mm-hmm. what high flex is, how to bring this overwhelm down, and what are some of the tips and tricks where do they so start? You want the magic, Natasha. That's what you're asking for. <laughs> so what I can share with you uh, are maybe three nuggets uh, mm-hmm. that come to mind. And these are ones that I, I often talk about. And I, they're, they're simple. And the first one, it actually addresses the first question from your faculty member, is how can I possibly be asked to teach three different classes at once? Yes. How can I design that? I barely have time to prepare for class now when I have a new class to teach. How can I do three at the same time or even just two at the same time? And my answer is, well, you shouldn't be thinking about it. Well, you shouldn't be, you should not, it should not be three different classes. It shouldn't even be two different classes, right? The challenge for most of us getting started is to, is to basically uh, support the online asynchronous learners with a legitimate, uh, relatively good quality, maybe not the best quality, but good quality online course experience um, when we all of our stuff is really prepared for in-class, right? Moving from in-class to online synchronous wasn't quite as hard from the content and materials side. It was more of the tr- problem with the connections and the network and how do I use this technology, mm-hmm. okay? But that's not that's not two different classes. That's learning how to use some different technology. Mm-hmm. So if, if we can get to the point where the real startup cost for faculty typically is building a reasonably good online course. Now, if you've got 
you know, good support systems at your institution. You've got maybe instructional design support. You've got professional development. You can take it might even be stipended or you may have a history of teaching online already. Then you're, 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 you've got some supports to move in that direction. So my, my, the, the, the nugget is this is the, my, my principle is build once and use it in all your different modes. So if I build the online course, which is the way I t- build my courses now, I can use that exact same course shell, the readings, a lot of the activities, a lot of the interactions, the assessments with my face-to-face students, mm-hmm. with my online synchronous students. I'm not building three courses. I'm building one course, one good course, and it's an online asynchronous course, and then I'm teaching it in the different modes. As a matter of fact, even if I didn't have asynchronous online students, my approach would still be to build the online asynchronous course and then teach it with my synchronous students because then I have the flexibility because guess what? Even with just synchronous students, there's always going to be somebody who's not there for some reason. And rather than just telling them, well, okay, well, you can't be here this week or maybe next week, just come back when you can and we'll, you know, we'll catch up, just do the homework and turn it in, you know, take the test, et cetera. I would rather have a backup plan for them. So that's, that's on the building side. That's part of the kind of the reuse idea. Another important one is there's a lot of work involved in getting started up that way. And there's also work that's involved in changing the way you do your work throughout the week. So if I'm going to be engaged with students, I need time to be engaged. Well, no one's giving me more time in my schedule to be engaged with students. So I have to schedule it in, which means I'm going to make some trade-offs. Maybe I'm going to put some time in there. I might be, I might normally be doing, I don't know, university-related email. Well, maybe that's going to be, uh, you know, forum time for me now. I'm going to schedule that in three times a week, about an hour at a time. Uh, and not, not an hour for every class, but an hour for all my classes. And I'm going to respect that time. And so that allows me to kind of help control my schedule. Um, and why do I do that? Well, for me, it's more important to be able to provide the learning opportunities to students in different modes than it is for me to be, you know, cutting a few hours out of my schedule. So mm-hmm. the point of that is the why has to be compelling. If you don't believe your students need this, then why would you do this unless someone else is telling you to do it? And I think that's a kind of a, that's not an ideal situation. So having an important why that's a really important thing. And you may not get the why unless you actually ask your students, but also ask the people you would like to serve as students that you're not serving now because they don't have access to your courses. They can't be there or they can't be there at that particular time or whatever it happens to be. I think sometimes we, we miss the, we miss the need because we're, we're only asking or looking at the students who are there every day anyway. What do they need online for? They're here in person. They don't need online. I don't want to teach online. Why would I do that? Okay. So that compelling why can actually help you get over a lot of these hurdles and help you make some decisions about um, what you're spending your time on, at least your work time. So that's two. That was a long nugget. That was a big nugget, but it's an important one. The third one is relatively simple, and that is for all these modes, we know that interaction with others and engagement is critical to support student learning for most students. Some students actually probably could be pretty good independent learners, but that's really not who we're spending most of our time and energy developing our instruction and our engagement for. But the point is that in every single mode, you as the faculty member, as the teacher, you have to be engaged, and I would say enthusiastically engaged, in each mode if you expect your students to be. Okay, you can't give students an assignment, asynchronous online in particular, just to engage in this way, do this discussion, and you're not there, right? doesn't mean you're there every day. You're not there 24-7, but you should be there on a regular basis, checking in, putting your voice in there, 
responding to the, not responding to every post, but responding to enough so they know that you're present. Your presence has to be felt and valued in every single moment, right? The online asynchronous students, if you never, if you never interact with them and you just wait for them to ask questions or to, to open up their microphone, uh, you know, like a student in class would, they're not going to do that. You have to actually engage with them and draw them in for that to be effective. So the point of that is in every single mode, engaged students start with an engaged faculty member. That's that's the third nugget. I have one quick question. I don't know if it's possible for you to give an unbiased answer to this. Do you think HyFlex is a future model, one of the important future models for institutions? And and also, you know, not just that there is so much uncertainty about how do we teach and what happens next semester, but looking a little bit long term, but also from the perspective of students, new coming students who are digital natives and right. who getting more and more used to the idea of making their own choices and getting their information from different sources and not just waiting to come to the classroom and get it there. Yes, that's a really good question. As a matter of fact, um, I, a couple of months ago, I found out that HyFlex classrooms, essentially the HyFlex teaching, was at the top of the Gartner Research Company's uh, hype cycle for higher education in 2021. I didn't know that before. And if you're familiar with that, you know they basically look at new things coming out, mm-hmm. and the top of the hype cycle means everybody's talking about it, mm-hmm. but everybody's talking about it without really understanding what it is or whether it can give them value. And the next part of that cycle is, okay, down what we call the trough of disillusionment, right, Mm -hmm. surfing down. And then on the other side, for good technologies and good approaches, they then come up to a lower level of implementation, but long-term value. And when I heard about that, I was at first I was, uh, like, excited. Wow, yeah, look, HyFlex is getting some some recognition from people who would normally not even pay any attention to this at all. And I thought, well, that, but that's a really bad thing to be just talked about as such, just some big hype that's going to go away. Mm -hmm. But I think it's actually pretty accurate. I think what we're seeing is a lot of people are talking about this approach primarily just because they have to get through this next whatever phase to the point where they can come back to the classrooms completely and then they can kind of forget about serving students who aren't able to be there. Some institutions will do that. But what I'm seeing now, especially with the, the incredibly growing support within the community colleges um, for serving students this way, lends me to think that this is going to be a long-term solution. And the reason I say that is because it's, I, I work in the California State University system, half a million students. A lot of our students come from community colleges. So in change that happens at the community college often lends, ends up uh, changing us a few years later. So I do think that especially starting at essentially the two to three year level of students who all often go into our four year schools, especially our state systems that are focused on bachelor's and master's granting institutions, we're going to start seeing more of a demand from students in the communities that represent students, a.k.a. legislatures, who are going to start looking for this, just like we've seen uh, that kind of influence in online courses. And actually, in our in our state, we're, we're actually changing our LMS now because our community colleges are all using a different LMS, and so now we have to change our LMS in part because the legislature says we want them to have the same LMS all the way through. So I do think that there's going to be some long-term, um, a lot more high flex in the future, but not nearly as much as you're seeing hyped about now. Because a lot of a lot of institutions will think, well, you know, it's not worth it for us. There's not a big enough why. And unless a faculty chooses to do this, if a faculty chooses to do this, we'll support them to doing that. But we're not going to tell anybody they have to do that. Um, and so that's that's going to be the case in a lot of places. Well, Brian, thank you. This was a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for 
Thank you for asking the questions and listening to my answers.